Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. I always think it's really interesting um, talking and speculating about uh, the sort of the post-singularity workforce when we're sitting here in London with Brexit. You know, because everyone's so focused about whether we're going to lose jobs to Europe. But it, it kind of feels like, you know, worrying about, I don't know, urban planning in the days before Pompeii. <laughs> it, 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 we're sort of on the verge of a, of a dramatic transformation in our workforce, but we're sort of worrying about the wrong stuff. I think that's right. And I think it's going to be some years before we start to see the impact of the new cognitive technologies on the workplace. And everybody's saying, well, we're at full employment. So clearly it's never going to happen, yeah. which is um, such a wrong way of looking at it. And yet, I mean, this, this is, I mean, America's a great example of this, very low unemployment. And there are all these anxieties about globalization. But when you look more closely, it actually feels like we've just, we've read this wrongly. A lot of these things are actually being driven by technology already now. Well, yes, technology is always at the heart of, of economic change. But I don't think that what's coming, the impact of uh, the new form of AI, which had its big bang in 2012, machine learning applied to, to AI. I don't think we've started to see the effects of that yet. And I think we will start to see it in the next 10 years or so. And it will have huge impact. I'm in Soho today with uh, Callum Chase, uh, who is the author of The Economic Singularity and Surviving AI. He's a fantastic speaker and writer. Uh, you've written science fiction books as well, right? I've written a science fiction novel, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, we're here to talk about uh, really the post-work future. Yeah. <laughs> well, it'd be nice, I guess, if we weren't working and just doing, uh, just having fun all the time, which is, I guess, what you suggest. But do you, you know, I mean, do you, do you think that robots will eventually be able to do things like give talks and, and entertain people? Yes, but not as well as humans. That's one of Thank the areas God. which I think will <laughs> probably be ours for a while. Um, but you talk about, you know, it'd be nice if we can all have fun. To be honest, Mike, I think you and I are pretty much living that, that life already. Right. I, mean, I don't know about you, but I'm, my career is my hobby. <laughs> well, th this, is, this is the thing. And, and, and you know, we're going to get into a little bit about what the economic singularity might look like. But there's sort of a primary question of why people work and where do we get fulfillment and, and what actually is a meaningful life. Uh, weirdly, this is stuff we've been arguing about for two, thousands of years, you know, but it sort of has special consequence now that we're actually seeing the real, you know, real-time automation of a lot of activities. Yeah, and um, if it turns out that machines do take all the jobs, which personally I think will happen, not in the next 10 years, probably not in the next 20 years, but in the next 30 to 40 years, I think it probably will happen. I don't think that will mean the end of work. I think it'll mean the end of paid employment. Right. But I think humans, as long as we are humans, which actually might not be that much longer than that, but as long as we're humans, we'll always work because we need to um, create, we need to make changes happen, we need to see our, ourselves having an impact on the world so to so feel you, you fulfilled. you see a difference between work and jobs. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So work is anything that you do, any project you do. If, a, if you do a painting, if you climb Creates up a hill. creative work. Or creative work, it can be creative work. Yeah. It can be very, very boring work as well. Right, like um, gardening. Uh, yeah, well, I, personally, <laughs> I agree with you. Lots of people would disagree. Um, or, you know, putting a car back together. That, that can be work. 
and you needn't be paid for it. I think a job is just something you get paid for. Right. And the, and the trick is, what do we do if the machines take all the jobs? They won't take all the work, but they could take all the jobs. So this is really an economic issue, isn't it? Because yeah. um, what we're talking about, and it might you know, it may take a significant amount of time to get there, is a radical new design for the economy. That's right. So if it does transpire that in, say, 30 years' time, uh, there's not much that a human can do for money that a robot, a machine, can't do cheaper, better and faster, then how do we get a great standard of living for all the humans? Personally, I don't think that the humans in that world would lack meaning because as long as they've got a good standard of living, as long as they've got enough income, they could be the best golfer that they could be, or they could be the best painter they could be, or they could spend their time climbing up and Luthien mountains, or whatever it is that turns them on. And there's a lot of different things that turn humans on. Um, the, the problem is um, how to get money to the people. That, that's, the, that's the central problem. That's the problem we have to solve. Is the question money, or is the question the things that you need? I, I mean, uh, in a way, what I'm always thinking about now is, was the main problem with communism just that they didn't have enough automation? No, no. The main problem with communism was, was central control. Absent a perhaps super intelligently brilliant and benign uh, mind, control. absent of that, central control absolutely leads to corruption and inefficiency. And that's right. what happened with communism. And it always will. Um, communism is not the answer. Communism is the wrong path to go down. It is a form of populism, just as damaging as right-wing populism. So, so what, what could this new economic society then look like? Well, we don't know, but it might be... Uh, on a previous podcast, you interviewed Daniel, Daniel Hume, and he has this great idea of, of a decentralised economy. Right, these blockchain organisations, yeah. smart contracts. Yeah, so the blockchain is, is a fascinating technology. It's a fascinating answer to a mathematical problem. And we don't yet know what it's for. And it's amazing that so much money have been invested in cryptocurrencies <laughs> and we don't know what they're for yet. Yeah. But in the distant future, and I'm talking 30, 40 years, it may turn out that the blockchain is the thing that makes the new economy work. It may be that the thing that enables uh, the economy to be decentralized and for everybody to have access to all the goods and the services that they need for a, for a really good life without having money. Or it may be that the future will be some sort of mildly moderated form of capitalism. Uh, capitalism is, is by far the most successful model that humans have had yet. Um, to paraphrase Churchill, you know, it's the worst of all possible mechanisms except, except for all the others. Uh, and it may be that we just need to tweak it. Or it may be we need to replace it with something else. I don't know the answer you, to that. You know, the hard thing about debating about this is that there's, it, it's so far in the future that it's hard to actually focus on the you know, the issues that are real enough to actually contrast and compare. Uh, so, you know, one of the things I thought was really interesting is when you were picking some examples from the present uh, that maybe show a possible model, uh, like how Spotify is an example of, of, yeah. of abundance, right? Yeah. And, and this, is, this is interesting because, you know, we've experimented with this idea of a decentralized economy to reward content creators. You know, since the beginning of the web, people had this idea of tip jars that, you know, if you like someone article, you could just leave a bit of money and it, it became pretty clear that that was never going to sustain someone who was a content creator, uh, nor were micropayments. But Spotify is an example of a scaled up micropayment system uh, in that if enough people listen to you, you will be able to earn enough of income, not maybe as much as you would have in the, in the glory days of selling multi-platinum albums, but you'd be able to survive. 
Yeah, and and maybe that form of um, you know sort of platform subscription that could be the way forward for all sorts of creative endeavours. And we need to solve that problem quite quickly because at the moment journalism is busy losing its business model. Um, journalism lost its ad revenue uh, to, to the web and we need a way to pay journalists because we're seeing all the time now how important journalists are and we need a new business model for that. Well Kindle Unlimited is another example of you know, a potential abundance model where you're rewarding well, unfortunately, mainly romance writers and <laughs> people write about vampires. And I guess that's, that's the issue, is that there could be some serious cultural consequences to an algorithmic culture society. Yes, I'm less worried about um, the distortion of society by algorithms than a lot of people are. You know, I, think, I think it's overdone at the moment. I do think as time goes on, we're likely to delegate more of our decisions to our algorithmic assistants or our, our AI assistants. And you could say that will lead us to some form of algocracy. That, that's an interesting issue, but I think that's quite a long way into the algocracy. future. Algocracy. Yeah, algocracy is the idea that you know, the, the world is run by AIs um, which make better decisions than you. So for instance, classic example, you walk into a bar and you're young, younger than me, and there's a, there's a blonde and a redhead at the bar and you're attracted to the redhead and your AI assistant, which by this point is embedded in your brain as a, as a chip, says to you, uh-uh, don't go talk to the redhead. I've been talking to her agent and you two would be poison together. Uh, the blonde, however, is you're very highly compatible and my agent and her agent have swapped some olfactory information and we think that this could work. So go and have a word with the blonde. And because you're a sensible person, you do what the agent says because you know the agent has better judgment than you. It knows you better than you know yourself. So that's an example of how algocracy could pan out. But that's quite a long way into the future. To me, this just sounds like arranged marriage. I mean, why even be in a bar? I mean, the algorithms can literally just reach a consensus without you even having to do anything. Yeah, super-powered <laughs> super arranged marriage, yeah. I guess when you think about the value that human beings create, you know, your view is, is that, you know, you could automate a lot of the jobs, but, you know, how, what does the next five to 10 to 15 years look like? Uh, I mean, there's presumably a lot of economic activity that would be generated by this transition period of even training the AIs to be yeah. able to be capable of taking over work. Yeah. So I think in the next five to 10 years, there's going to be a huge amount of opportunity uh, for smart people who are flexible, well-educated and can see a, look a little bit ahead to, to, to see some of the opportunities that will be available. I think in the next 5, 10, probably 15 years, what we're going to see is a lot of churn, a lot of job churn. So uh, there will be jobs that are destroyed. Uh, clearly, professional drivers are going to be out of a job within the next 15, yeah, 20 years. Yeah, I saw that map that, that, that you, you showed once. It had like the most common job title in all these different states. And and, and I couldn't believe how many of them were truck drivers. Yes, it's a bit of a cheat, that, Matt, because it doesn't mean that uh, that is the most common job. It just means that's the most common job title. So there'll be other jobs which have got sort of balkanized and lots of people, oh. more people are doing them. That just, However, it is a huge job category. But they I mean, used to be secretary. Yes, absolutely. So, so, I mean, when I started work... But the secretaries are not driving trucks now. No, they're not. No, the secretaries <laughs> are now... You know, hopefully many of them are in good management and interesting jobs, you know, because women are doing much, many more interesting jobs than they used to when I started work. But when I started work, there were secretaries in every office, and now there are very few of them. And they've been automated. So it's an, an interesting example that we have had cognitive automation in the past. It was Microsoft Office that did it. Yeah. Um, now, 
truck drivers there's about three million in the US and there's about five million professional drivers in the US there's about a million in the UK and I think in the next 15-20 years those jobs will go now how many of those people will become coders and will become practitioners in robotic process or just, automation or just hand delivering parcels to Amazon that the drones can't reach that, uh, that's going. That, that, that job's well, going. The thing is, in almost every society, at almost every level of technology, there's always a kind of a fluid, flexible workforce that does things that, for economic or technological reasons, can't actually be done by you know, some other means. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, they're driving trucks now, but there's always going to be that kind of fluid workforce that you know, hasn't had the same professional qualifications or level of knowledge to do higher level work. Yeah, that could be an uncomfortable place to be. You know, if you're a, a, a gig economy worker um, swooping in when an Amazon drone falls out the sky or you know, fails to deliver to the right place and you're there to fix it, um, that's, that's a job could probably be bid quite low. Um, that's probably not the, the most interesting area no, to, to be working in. So I think you know, in the next period, we're going to see a lot of this job churn where there will be a lot of jobs destroyed, but there will be an awful lot of new jobs created. And I think we'll probably stay at full employment or near it. I think some people will get discouraged because they keep getting churned out of jobs and they just give up. But I think most people will, will remain in jobs and they'll have to because you know, that's, that's the way that you're going to earn an income and that's the way you're going to stay alive and feed your family. The interesting question to me is, well, firstly, how do we manage that churn? Because it's going to be uncomfortable for a lot of people. But the bigger question, I think, is beyond that, 20 to 40 years. Hmm. when we probably will get, I think, to the point where machines will be able to do most of the things that humans do for money, cheaper, better and faster, and then you start to get real unemployability. Then you start to get huge swathes of people who will just never work, never do a job again. They'll always work, they won't do jobs. And that's when we will need either a, a major revision to capitalism or something different to replace it. So you don't think that paying people a universal basic income is going to be enough to appease them? Uh, no, you and I are both rather sceptical about <laughs> UBI. Uh, it's, it's one out of three in, in UBI. There's the three words, universal, basic and income. So what is the point of paying Mark Zuckerberg uh, an income if he's you know, still owning vast assets and earning vast sums? It's just a, just a waste of money. And basic is the real problem. Uh, to pay people a modest amount of income, to keep them just above the poverty level. And if that's all we can do for something like a quarter to a half of society, we have failed. And I don't think society is sustainable on that basis. We have to do a lot better than that. We have to, and we should, in a world where we're, we're creating goods and services with great efficiency, we should be able to provide really great standards of living for everybody Subs- all around the world. Subsistence can't be the goal. No, subsistence it must not be the goal and it, and it just isn't going to be sustainable. No. Um, so, so the basic in universal basic income is, is the biggest problem. And certainly at the moment, as, as the economist John Kay says, you know, if, it's, if, it's, if, if UBI is high enough to be useful, it's not affordable. And if it's low enough to be affordable, it's not useful. So I think it is the wrong answer, but it's, it's kind of the default answer that a lot of people give when they start yeah, taking unemployability. I, I, I think so, and I think it's also the classic fallback position of the technology solutionists you yeah. know, in Silicon Valley who, who, who kind of just use it as a band-aid for dealing with some of the deeper structural issues of inequality. Or you know, uh, San Francisco is a classic example of that. I mean, you, you see incredible wealth and incredible poverty. Yeah. And uh, just giving people enough money to, uh, you know, 
cover housing, food, and a Netflix subscription, you know, is really a dangerous cocktail for fermenting revolution. Yeah. I mean, it's better than not giving them enough money to do that. No. It's better than having it, people sleeping on the streets, but it, it isn't enough. And, and you're right. There's this kind of two classes of people who like UBI a lot. One are uh, people who are on the political left and, and redistribution is their favorite blood sport. And UBI <laughs> is a great excuse to do it because yeah. it sounds technological and new and modern. And the other are people who have taken the idea of unemployability seriously, which is good. That's a big first step. Most people haven't got there yet. So they, they do that and then they think, okay, in this new world, most people aren't doing jobs. What do we do? We'll give them money. So UBI seems to be the answer. But it isn't the answer for the reasons we've discussed. So it's kind of a, it, it, it's people who haven't thought hard enough about it. And there's a lot of people in that category. You know, Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk both appear to be in that category. They both appear to accept that the technologies that they are themselves developing will put a lot of people out of, out of jobs. And they haven't got the answer to how to deal with that other than, well, give them UBI. Well, the, the Romans actually had their own version of the UBI. It was called Bread and Circuses. Yeah. yeah. You know, which we just, we just now have uh, uh, subsistence money in Netflix. And arguably, the Romans had their own version of, of job automation because they had slaves. Yeah. We have robots, they had slaves. Yeah. So when you think about the kinds of skills or the mindsets or the perspectives that will stand people in good stead to survive this, not only the transition, but the long-term transformation, what do you think they are? I think people should think about what can a machine not do today and in the next two to three years trying to see beyond that is a, is a mugs game probably but um, and, and they are, they are there are things that machines can or will be able to do in both manual and in um, intellectual work so if you're a junior accountant and you're doing the ticking and bashing you're probably now if you're doing it now you're probably all right because you're going to you're, you're going to graduate from it and do real accounting before the machines arrive but if you're thinking of going into it hmm, I'm not sure that the machines won't get there before you finish that that course on the other hand, you know, if you're packing in an Amazon warehouse, Amazon's recruiting like crazy at the moment because Amazon itself is growing so fast, but it's probably no more than four or five years before they figure out the last few manual processes, how to make machines do those, and then all those humans in the warehouses are probably going to disappear. I'm not saying that Amazon, fact, Amazon warehouses are all going to go dark within the next five years, it maybe take 10, but some shortish period of time, I think that will start to happen. But there are things which machines are going to take a long time to be able to do. So um, figuring out what's just gone wrong in a process, that's probably something that humans will do for a, a fair amount of time. Making strategic decisions about organizations and about countries, that's going to be the preserve of humans for a long time. Genuine art is an interesting one. So art, I think most people would agree, is the process of communicating something profound to other humans. To do that, you have to have experience. And machines, it's going to be a very long time before machines are sentient, if at all. And so they can't create art. Well, you know, I, I want to talk to you about this one because this in particular, I think, you know, is an area where people say like algorithms can create music and create art, but they forget that art isn't craft. I mean, sure, you can create something, but that thing only has significance because it was created by a human. Yeah. So and it's representative of our experience or our response to the world. And you know, maybe, it, it, maybe if a human designs a machine that creates a piece of art, that is itself the statement. But it's nonsensical just to say that artists will lose their jobs. Yeah. So uh, this is controversial, but <laughs> I would argue not all music is art. 
and I would argue that not all paintings are art. Uh, there's lots of paintings which are just sort of effectively done by numbers and, and more or less automatic, and, and surely machines can do that. Same is true of music. You know, there are AIs which currently produce very creditable music, but it isn't art because it's not communicating anything profound about... You haven't listened spirit. to enough John Cage. <laughs> <laughs> I've listened to very little, and personally I think there's probably enough. But in the same way you can argue that not all art is art, not all work is work either. And, you know, the, the thing is about, about work is that I, I don't think it's as clear to say that the transactional, easily defined jobs are the ones that are going to be replaced because arguably a lot of decision-making and strategy uh, could be better handed to algorithms or at least the job of the people should be to design the algorithms that make the decisions on a regular, consistent basis rather than to spend their time making inconsistent decisions. There are lots of decisions which machines can already make and should already make and I, I don't know if this is true but I imagine that deciding exact time of day to switch the street lights on yeah you know that's that's a job which or, a machine should or, be able to do or uh, how you manage a data center and this this was the uh, you know this was something we spoke about before which is you know Google's decision recently to not only just let the algorithms make recommendations about running the data center they should they now got direct control of all the HVAC systems, which, which just, I mean, I'm actually shocked that wasn't what, not what they did originally. Yeah, yeah. It, well, it's it been very interesting how long that has taken to happen, yeah. because it was 2016 when DeepMind famously saved Google something like 15% uh, in, in the cooling of one of their data centers. And it's been two years before they've started to really roll it out. Now, um, there's an interesting debate about why it's been, why that delay's happened. Some people say it's just big company bureaucracy. Some people who know Google and DeepMind quite well are saying that. It might also be that actually the first time they did it, it took some very smart people quite a lot of time to wrangle the algorithms and, and gen generate and sieve all the data to make it possible. And then to kind of productize that and make it cheaper and easier to do has taken a while. I, I suspect that's the answer. There, there was another dimension to that that I thought was interesting, which is, you know, when I was reading the release, is that there was a big focus on safety. And what I realized that they'd done is that they'd essentially created a, a kind of a lookup Bible of uh, safe settings, essentially, so that the algorithm came up with its optimal balance. But it then would cross-reference this contextual Bible about whether those things actually in the real world were a good idea or not. Mm. And, and so it was an interesting blend of, of machine learning and, and symbolic AI. Yeah, interesting. It takes a long time. But it takes um, a long time to codify that context. And, and to deal with and, all the And human cases. beings, that, that's a human job, essentially, like to, to know what things in the real world are actually a good idea or not. Yeah, and, and especially with the edge cases. You know, it, it, yeah. a lot of the time is taken in removing the edge cases. And you're seeing this in self-driving vehicles, where Google now says, I think, I think it's 3,000 miles, that their cars take between disengagements. So the cars drive themselves very happily, dealing with everything they encounter, chickens wandering across the road. But about every 3,000 miles, the car says, uh-oh, can't deal with this, hands over to the human. Now, that number, that, that time, that length is getting longer and longer, but Google need it to be really long before they can uh, sort of, before, before self-driving vehicles are ready for prime time. They already have uh, civilians in Arizona using Google Cars as a taxi service. You sign up for the program and, and off you go. And there is no uh, human driver at all. You sit in the back, there's nobody in the front. 
but every 3,000 miles or so, the, the taxi will stop, <laughs> and yeah. then somebody will have to come and do it, or, or it'll be remotely driven. Um, and, and as I say, that what, what they're doing now is dealing with the edge cases. They have to get that 3,000 to 90,000, or some number, and I'm sure they've got a number in their heads as to where they've got to get it to. And that's what takes the time, dealing with the edge cases. And it'll be quite a long time before machines can deal with the edge cases in most production and service environments. That's what will take the time. This idea you have of the economic singularity, does it basically rely on uh, machines being self-aware, the ability to program themselves? I mean, what from a technological infrastructure has to happen in order for us to hit that cliff of the radical transformation of work? Okay, so this is important. It's not about machines becoming self-aware. I think unemployability is going to arrive well before we get to artificial general intelligence, which is when machines have all the cognitive abilities of an adult human and probably, although we don't know, become sentient. It's quite likely those two things are happening around about the same time. We don't know. I do think, and and this is very controversial, I do think that will happen, but um, I think it's probably 50 to 100 years in the future. And that actually turns out is what most, uh, or a lot of AI researchers think, is that sort of time period. But I think machines will be able to do uh, most of the things that humans do for do for money, cheaper, better, and faster, well before we get to AGI. So I think we've got two singularities coming up in this century, what I call the economic singularity, which is unemployability, our jobless future, which can be great if we manage it well, if (laughs) if we're smart. And then later, the technological singularity, which is when we get to AGI and superintelligence, which is the really, really big change. That's the huge step change for humanity, quite a long way away. Because we're not thinking straight about the economic singularity, I think that's, that, that's what I spend most of my time focusing on. That's what I think we need to get more and more people taking seriously. Because at the moment, the conventional view, and this is popularized by tech leaders and almost all politicians, is, yeah, we've had automation in the past. It's never caused lasting widespread unemployment in the past, and therefore it won't in the future. And this is just rubbish. You know, The idea that because something happened in the past, it's therefore going to happen in the future is nonsense. Past performance is no guarantee of future outcome, and if it was, we would not be able to fly. Horses were rendered unemployable. There were 21.5 million horses working in America in 1915, and now the population of horses in America is about 2 million, and they mostly race around tracks. So that was massive unemployability, thanks to technology. It took a long time to happen, um, but it did arrive for them. And it arrived for them because the machines took their muscle power jobs, Humans, muscle power jobs were also taken, so humans stopped working the land. Then they went to work in factories and, and shops and, and, and offices. And now we have cognitive automation coming. What do humans do beyond that for money? If the machines take our cognitive jobs, what do machines do beyond that? It's not at all clear, and I think but we may... People still have to design, build, train, modify, adjust, audit all of these systems. I mean. The, the thing about the horse example is, yeah, okay, you don't need that many horses, but horses aren't cognitively agile enough to adjust not being a horse. The question is what happened to all the horse riders? And, and presumably they found other things to do. Yeah, yeah, just as the buggy whip manufacturers and the yeah. carriage manufacturers and many of them became automobile manufacturers. And, and you're right, you know, the, la- the past rounds of automation did not 
take away our cognitive jobs, but the, the, the future ones will. They won't, you know, machines, it'll be a very long time before machines make all of our decisions for us, but they will increasingly make more and more sophisticated decisions. And if you doubt that, when they just can look do, at self-driving vehicles. I, I that's mean, the, what the, doing. The, you know, the one thing which I think is pretty clear, when the machines can actually design other machines that are also cognitive, then that, that takes out a big chunk of where human beings were doing something valuable. And machines will program themselves, but it, it'll be at the basic level first, hmm. and they'll gradually step up the value chain. You know, if you, if you doubt that machines will make decisions, quite sophisticated decisions, just look at self-driving cars. You have to be 16, 17 year old as a human to be allowed to learn to drive a car. It is not a trivial skill. So if you're starting out today and, uh, you know, the, the, the usual path of becoming an accountant or you know, joining a company like Amazon is being closed off rapidly because there's going to be a level of automation, what becomes the entry point into the, into the workforce? Well, the obvious thing for the next few years is to go into machine learning if you can because there's a massive shortage of, of qualified machine learning people. So if you're smart and good at maths, that's the place to go. Uh, it's always a good idea to be wealthy. Uh, and <laughs> particularly in times of turbulence, you know, if, if, if the solids hit the air conditioning, if you can afford a refuge in New Zealand, you're better off than if you can't. So um, the city is, the city, Wall Street, there's still places to, to make money because if you play with money, you make more money. So those are still place, good places to go. Um, but actually my, my uncynical advice to, to young people, to people of my son's age, 17, is to get a good broad education because it's quite likely, I think in my son's lifetime, I think unemployability will be a big thing. And if we manage the transition to the post-jobs society well, then he will live a life of leisure. And that's terrific, that's really great. What you need to live a life of leisure, you need a well-stocked mind. So you need to understand how the world works through the hard sciences, you need to understand how societies work through the social sciences, and you need to understand how humans individually work through the humanities. So learn something about all of those, have a broad range of, of education is the, is the real thing to do. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds. Thank you.